Hey, you're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and we are stepping into part eight of our overview through the book of James. We're about to dive into James chapter four, verses one to 12. Uh, Just so you know, we had some complications again with our live uh, recording. This was a message I preached live to our church in uh, Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. Uh, on Sunday. It's Friday now. It's Friday evening. It's raining out. Um, I thought, well, this is a great time to sit in my office and uh, come and chat with you guys. So, and honestly, it's taken me about a week to kind of regather. This was a doozy to preach live and it um, just took a lot of out of, a lot out of me. And so uh, it's taken me this week to gather up the steam again to present this to you. But uh, I just want to pray before we do. I also want to say wherever you're listening to this from, uh, whatever you're doing right now, whenever you're listening to this, it's a privilege and an honor to connect with you. So uh, unless you're driving um, or lifting weights or doing something that requires eyesight, Why don't you just close your eyes with me, take a moment to pray, and we'll dive in. Oh, Jesus, um, uh, first of all, I just declare you Lord of my life again this evening. I just humble myself before you and um, acknowledge your Lordship over every area of my life, every area of life, uh, whether it's family, work, um, finances, school, whatever. Um, everyone on the other side of this microphone is just walking through in their own life. I just declare you Lord over all of it. And we submit ourselves to you in these moments, Jesus. We bring ourselves under the covering of your blood And I dedicate myself to you again this evening, Jesus. I dedicate everyone um, under the sound of my voice listening to this. I dedicate them to you, Jesus. And uh, Father, I just command any unholy power that is present here uh, around me in this space or um, active in the lives of anyone listening to this, uh, any unholy power that is present I forbid you from uh, exercising any unholy authority, uh, carrying out any assignments uh, right now in Jesus' name. And um, where there are any unclean spirits that have rights and grounds to anyone's life that's listening to this, I just suspend your authority right now in the name of Jesus. I forbid you from interfering with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus, I forbid you from twisting or distorting um, the words of God that we are gonna read and dive into together. In the name of Jesus, I just uh, command you to step aside and uh, I ask Holy Spirit that you would open our ears to hear and our minds to understand and comprehend um, the mysteries and the stuff of the kingdom that 
is just above and beyond us. And uh, so we just, we bring ourselves to your word. And I ask, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would shape us through it. Shape me, teach me, even as I walk through this again. Would you shape and form me into the image of Jesus? I, I, I just ask for your work and your life and your goodness and your faithfulness to be active and present in these moments as we dive into uh, James chapter four. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, James four, I'm gonna read this. Normally we have uh, someone from our congregation read this and uh, we in, uh, invite our whole church to stand kind of thing. And the reason we do that corporately is that scripture was, was primarily written to be heard. And in the first century, especially, or you know, if we're talking Old Testament before the first century, thousands of years ago, they didn't walk around with um, you know the U version app on their first century smartphone or smart uh, scroll. <laughs> I guess at that time. So anyway, the scripture was meant to be heard, and um, so that's why we read it live in church and on a weekly basis, but also why I'm gonna read it now for you. James 4, one to 12. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you wanna be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Don't you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? All right, so those are the verses that we're gonna dive into. Again, this is a survey. We're not gonna go in depth in each verse, but we're going to, my goal here is just to provide an overview of the major thoughts, ideas, themes, theology, um, that kind of stuff that James has going on here. 
And um, just as a review, in this book, uh, this short book, the book of James, he's isolated three crucial areas that we need in order to live out what we say we believe. So this whole um, pastoral call of James, this whole pastoral sort of like urgent call to his friends, to Messianic Jews in the first century, that's who he's primarily writing to. But of course, scripture has application for us today, even though we're not in the first century. And most of you listening probably are not Messianic Jews. Um, There's still application here for us. uh, But going way back to the beginning, James has isolated three crucial areas that we need in order to live out what we say we believe. Those three areas that are, these are three essentials for following Jesus in the world we live in. Again, this whole book is about living what you say you believe. So first area, first crucial area needed in order to live out what we say we believe is number one, control of the tongue. And James has been hammering on that in this whole book. Number two, Uh, according to James, is care for the marginalized, for widows and orphans. Those are two groups that he specifically um, makes mention of. Just again, as a way of reminder, in the first century, orphans were not children specifically and only without any parents. Um, Children with single parent uh, households or children with just one parent were considered orphans. Also, In the first century, widows, that is not only or exclusively the category of women who have lost their husbands and are now without a husband anymore. This, um, when when you kind of study the Greek behind that word widows, it also included women who had never been married or women who were were single. So, Um, James is calling um, his friends, he's calling us to express what we say we believe by taking care for the marginalized widows and orphans. And I'm sure that James would endorse us expanding that to those who are marginalized in our society today. So number one, control of tongue is an evidence that you're living out what you say you believe. Number two, care for the marginalized. And then number three, holiness and an uncompromised heart, a heart that is uncompromised. And James would be saying and agreeing, I think, with Paul and saying the the flesh, the world, and the devil are the three primary agents that are at war against the purposes and plans of God for you. They're the things that are at war for your heart. And so James is calling us not just to control our tongue as a measure of external discipline. Anybody can do that. He's not only calling us to take care of the marginalized and be philanthropic. Anybody can do that. You don't have to know Jesus to do that. He's calling us to those, yes, but also to holiness, to an undivided heart, an uncompromised heart, a heart that is devoted to God and is faithful to him. So those are the three that James has been talking about and he's referenced them and talked through them repeatedly in this book so far. And today, uh, James specifically is going to be going after the source 
of infighting and quarrels and dissension happening in the church. Um, and again, James, as he goes after the source, he's not just talking about behavior management. We've talked about this already. When James is, um, when he's speaking and when he's diving deep into these things, he's not just talking about psychological or behavioral management. He's talking about getting to the source of um, of these issues, to the the place in our heart and in our life where these things are emanating from. And today specifically, he's going after the source of infighting and quarrels and dissension going on in the church. He starts in verse one of chapter four uh, with these words. Again, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? And then um, that's a rhetorical question. He answers that. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? So James is saying, look, the origins of the division you're experiencing, the origins of the division that James was seeing in the church, in the communities that he was a part of, in the church that's been now dispersed throughout uh, the Roman Empire, um, struggling under persecution and under the weight of that persecution, um, they're, they're, they're fracturing and they're crumbling. And James is saying, look, the reason that you're coming unglued and the reason you're fighting so much and the reason you're bickering and quarreling and, and going to war against each other is not just a matter of, of undisciplinedness, it is an issue of the desires that are at war within your heart, in your inner being. Um, depending on who you study and read uh, as a scholarly expert or scholarly experts for this, uh, some, some people believe that James still has teachers in mind. So going back to chapter 3-1, they believe James is still addressing teachers. And uh, in this passage, that, that one of the main functions of this passage is that James is hammering still. He's hammering on these teachers and the destruction that is coming from their tongue. These teachers are breeding chaos and division and James is still just <laughs> kind of pummeling them. And he is uh, unreservedly saying, look, you teachers, you're, you're the example setters in the community. You're the authority figures. You're the ones that people are looking up to. And you are making things worse. You're inciting division and you're inciting quarrels and you're inciting these battles and disputes and these fights. And... Um, so at least in part, that's what James is still speaking to here. Again, I think there is an, uh, you know, an acceptable personal application for us. But James is talking to this state of uh, hostility and outright war or battle that's going on in the churches. Another phrase, um, Scott McKnight uses this, that you could use for this is warring and sorting, <laughs> battles and disputes. Um, and um, so I think that James is making reference to not only what is going on externally, so not only what these teachers are, are, um, uh, are, are creating, the culture that they're provoking and the environment and the atmosphere they're creating through their, um, their way of teaching and um, their rhetoric and all of that stuff, but he's also, I think, talking 
about and speaking to an inner reality, an inner war and an inner battle that's going on um, in people's lives. And Paul mentions this type of situation in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, where he says, we, uh, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We face conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. So James could be talking here about that same reality, actual conflict externally and metaphoric battles internally. And um, again, James lived in a culture where violence in the name of God um, was not uncommon. Violence in the name of purity and devotion to God. J- James lived in a culture and, and probably, most likely, would have personally had experience with and known a, a group in his culture. Again, we referenced this way back in week one, but a group called the Zealots. And these were, um, these were uh, Jewish men, primarily, uh, maybe women, but Jewish men who would use violence against Roman leaders, against Roman soldiers, violence in order to try and overthrow the Roman occupation, violence in the name of God. And we see this happening in scripture, probably more than we would want to admit. And this could be something that James has in his purview as he's talking about the quarrels and fights that he's seeing around them. Like some, some of you are even given, um, and maybe this is James saying this, some of you are even given to um, acting violently, thinking that you are doing it on behalf of God, or that is a, that is a, a sign of your purity and devotion. And we see this again all through scripture. In the Old Testament, we see this happening and also in the New Testament, even in um, people like the Apostle Paul's life. Paul himself, uh, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, was a person who used redemptive or religious violence. Acts 8.3, Saul, so that was his name before he met Uh, Jesus, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison, Acts 9.1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Um, So Saul himself is using violence, um, but saying that this is redemptive. This is in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God. James was in a society that had many zealots, as I mentioned. And um, Jesus, too, had at least one zealot as a disciple, um, Simon the Zealot. But it's, it's possible that uh, Jane, um, sorry, John and his brother uh, were zealots. It's possible that Peter had some sort of interaction with zealots as well. And but Jesus taught them a new way to bring in the kingdom, and so uh, it's it's fascinating to note that Jesus, in his sort of inner circle of the twelve of the disciples, he had people that were that were drawn to this this way of expressing devotion to God using violence. But Jesus himself taught a new way. 
Uh, and we can see this in Mark 8, 31 and 37. Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, he's, this, these are his disciples, he began to tell them the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law, that he would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then he reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Again, Jesus is revealing a different way. He's actually um, counterforming those zealots that are around him, those who feel like there's a call for and a need for religious war or violence, Jesus is counterforming them from that. Matthew 5, 21, 22. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. But if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, so this is Jesus, again, turning the tables and counterforming even the religious community around him. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, let me just stop there. <laughs> Give you a moment to think about that. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Again, in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, Jesus says, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So Jesus is calling um, not to... Uh, sort of a religious and redemptive violence. He's calling to a radical new way that is a, a, a new mode of being. And I think this is in part what James is, is referencing as he talks to those who are stirring up quarrels and fights in the community. He's saying, look, there's Jesus inaugurated a different way, a nonviolent way to engage with those that are uh, against you, with those that you would consider your enemy, with those who um, you are frustrated by, who you disagree with, those who you're opposed to theologically and ideologically and socially and culturally and all of those other things. Jesus is calling us to a different way to interact. Um, even Paul was radically different in how he expressed zealousness for God after he met Jesus. Paul's zeal was reshaped by Jesus. Remember, we talked a few uh, weeks ago about the bitter zeal that James is drawing reference to. Paul's zeal before he met Jesus could be described as bitter zeal. Not all zeal is godly. 
And so, um, you know, even Paul was radically reshaped. Paul's zeal was reshaped by Jesus from a zeal that leveraged violence um, to a zeal that was willing to suffer and die for others. When Paul was being confronted and challenged on his authority as an apostle, um, he doesn't kind of, he doesn't get his back up and start raising his voice and start, you know, he doesn't threaten to go after these people and and demonstrate his power and dominance um, over them as a means or a, um, a reflection of his authority as an apostle. What does he do? He says this, I'm ashamed to say um, that I've been too weak to do that. So Paul is saying, look, I'm ashamed to say I've been too weak to come at you with all guns blazing, to come at you with a, a, a you know, a bravado and a dominance and uh, an exercising of power and authority over you. I've been too weak to do what I used to do in a, in a way. And Paul is being a bit sarcastic here, but Here's where he goes into the defense of his authority. Um, he says, uh, are they Hebrews, those, these people challenging my authority? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So Paul is saying, I have the cultural background. I have the cultural pedigree. I've got the DNA in me to prove um, where I come from. Are they servants of Christ? I know when I sound that I sound like a madman, but I've served him far more. I've worked harder, been been in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers, from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, and I've often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without feeling, without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. So Paul's claim to authority is no longer from a place of strength and dominance and power, the ability to exert, uh, um, you know, pressure and violence over someone to subdue someone under him. His, his sort of basis of authority is weakness and brokenness and humility. It's the kind of stuff that reminds us of Jesus. Jesus did not exert strength through power and domination and yelling and all of these. Yes, Jesus did have confrontational moments. No, Jesus was not a pushover. He was not just, you know, a doormat for everybody. But authority from Jesus's perspective and from Paul's perspective does not require power physically over another. 
And this is where we, we, we get our wires crossed so often and our natural instinct for many of us, myself included, our natural instinct when we feel threatened or when we uh, feel like our, our, um, our beliefs or our convictions, our biblical worldview, when we feel that being threatened, oftentimes our natural base instinct is to want to fight, is to want to oppose, is to want to assert you know, our conviction over another is to want to implement with force our conviction. And man, um, I think that Jesus challenges that. At the very least, he challenges that. And so James is clarifying here the source of these quarrels and fights, the source of this religious zealotry, the source of this stuff um, is not God. You know, like, so he's looking at his community and he's like, you guys are bickering and you're fighting and you're contentious and you're always angry and you're always, you know, at war with each other. But guys, that is not coming from the spirit of God. That's not consistent with the fruit of the spirit. Those are cravings that are at war with God in you. Those are your base desires that are actually contrary to the way of God. That's an expression of how you just want to just kind of lash out at those around you, those you disagree with, those you're angry with, those who have hurt you, those, and the list goes on and on. And um, James, that, that word for cravings, um, and desires are, that word is um, hedonai, which is where we get uh, our word hedonism. And that word means pleasure or sinful self-indulgent pleasure. And again, specifically, James here is not giving a diatribe against the hedonism in the broader culture. He's speaking about the desires at war within those who say they're following Jesus within the church, within the believing community. And so James, I think here is connecting this with what he said way back in chapter one, verse 14 and 15, where he said, temptation comes from our own desires, uh, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. We're gonna see in a few verses that I think in addition to that, James also has in view um, unholy supernatural power as a source and a root of those desires that are at war in us with the desires and heart of God. So James is not going off on culture here. He's, he is challenging sharply, very sharply, the teachers and followers of those teachers who say they're following Jesus. And... Um, and this is kind of consistent um, with also the way that Peter talks in 1 Peter 1, 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. So these divisions, these fights, these quarrels, they're not being driven by the Spirit of God. They're being driven by these old desires, these old patterns of of uh, conflict, these old patterns that, so here's what happens when, when, we're, when we, we are under pressure, 
whether it's in our marriage, at work, in, when we're under the pressure of confrontation, when things kind of, when we butt heads, when things start to get real, m- most often we then, we, we revert to old patterns, old ways of relating to others, old um, sort of uh, systems and structures of behaving and speaking that's what happens when the pressure's on, when we, when we kind of uh, splinter and fracture, we then, um, you know, we, we res- kind of, we fall back into the, the mode of least resistance, which is often an expression of, you know, um, anger and dissension and, belittling and name calling and whatever, just the list goes on and on. Peter also mentions stuff like this in 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires, which wage war against your very souls. Paul references this dynamic in Romans 6.12 and 14. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole life, um, you sorry, use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master for you're no longer under the requirements of the law. Why are you fighting the way you used to? Why are you using the same formulas and tactics that you used to use? Why are you going back down that road? That's sort of what James is saying. He's echoing um, his his friends, maybe his contemporaries. Um, certainly, he would have known and have met Paul and Peter, so he's echoing some of their same thoughts. And so James is saying these fights, these quarrels, this this dissension, this um, you know, this stuff that's that's going on, is because of what's at war within you. And Paul could be here uh, when he uses that phrase at war within you. He could be speaking on two levels here, both what's at war within you in your heart internally. And he also could be speaking to the church body, what's at war within the church body. Both of those, I think, are in view for James. Sorry, I might have just said Paul, but James uh, could be talking about both those things. So, and now he turns to two problems that that are the identifiers for him. So he's like, hey, you wanna know how I know that this stuff is going on? Here are you know, two things that I see and they're both found in your prayer life. So interestingly enough, James now uh, goes back to sort of um, spiritual formation and what he is recognizing or um, observing as he's watching them and listening to them pray. And he has two issues that he wants to bring uh, attention to, pastoral counsel to, that he's seeing in their prayer lives. Number one is some of them aren't praying. And number two, some of them who are praying are praying with wrong motives. Let me just recap that, read that again. You want you want what you don't have. This is James 4, 2, and 3. So you scheme and kill to get it. 
You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So the first problem that he sees is the problem of no prayer. These are, um, he's pointing out that some of you are, you, you just, you don't even invite God into these issues in your life. You, you have a problem. I think what's at the root of this that James is going after is you have a problem with the spirit of self-sufficiency and pride and a spirit of independence. You're not receiving, this is James saying, you're not receiving because you aren't even asking. You're so satisfied and focused on what you can do and accomplish that you don't even bother to ask God. You're so impatient that you don't wait for God to work around you. You just jump into uh, fix-it mode. You jump into strategy mode. You just... It's like, well, I'm, I can't wait around for anybody to, to do this for me. So I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to start doing the stuff that I know how to do, this kind of stuff that I think is the smart thing to do. And James is saying, look, like you're not even letting God uh, speak into this. You're not, you're not bringing this to him in prayer. You're just, you're just getting on your horse here and, and charging out of the gate and James is saying, like, that's, that's evidence that you're not being driven by the Holy Spirit. That's evidence um, that, yeah, that I can see that these quarrels and these divisions are not coming from, from the Holy Spirit. They're, these aren't things that are being driven by the Holy Spirit. And the reason I can see it is because in your prayer life, you're not, even, you're not even bringing this stuff to God in prayer. You're just trying to solve it with your own wisdom, with your own strategy, with your own impatience and your own need um, to just, you know, be heard in your own need to fix this and your own need to make others around you believe what you believe and and share the convictions you do and come to the same conclusions you do and all of this stuff. And so James is saying, I see a lot of activity around, but not a lot of waiting on God, not a lot of prayer. And um, th this, man, this is deeply convicting for me deeply convicting as somebody who does get impatient. Um, I, I want God to move and work way faster than he often does. Uh, most of the time, uh, almost all the time, God operates much, much slower than we would prefer. And often God is testing us <laughs> whether or not we would wait. Um, in Psalm 2, verse 8, it's a psalm talking about uh, Jesus, the Messiah. And I won't read that right now, but in Psalm 2, 8, God is challenging Jesus to ask him for his inheritance. Then ask me for, for the nations as an inheritance. So if Jesus had to ask, if Jesus had to humble himself, kill his spirit or kill any spirit of self-sufficiency wanting to cripple him or any spirit of independence or pride or all, you know, if Jesus had to ask, then how much more do we have to ask? Uh, 
the famous um, 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon, said this, if the royal and divine son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot be exempt, or sorry, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Why should it be? He goes on to say, if you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. And I beseech you to abound in it. Don't you know, brothers and sisters, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man or woman. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. He's echoing what Paul says in Ephesians 1, every blessing in heavenly places has been made accessible to us through Jesus. There is nothing that God is withholding from us in terms of resources from um, from the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing that God is withholding from us. The question is, are you even asking? Just, just even take a moment to just review and, and ask, Holy Spirit, just, you know, ask him, even help me right now. Are there areas of my life that I have abandoned or maybe never um, entered into prayer on? Are there things that I have just determined um, that I'm going to do out of my own wisdom or strength? Are there problems in my marriage or at work or finances or, you know, um, areas of, of whatever going on in the culture around me? Are there things in my life that I've refused to pray about, that I've refused to wait on you for, that I've been too impatient about? So James is saying, look, these quarrels, I know that these are not godly quarrels because you're not even praying about this stuff. And we have a great temptation in our men. And I face this, so I'm not, I'm not preaching to you here. I'm like, I'm preaching to me here. We have a huge temptation right now to go online and just find the people that we agree with to listen to their uh, cultural analysis and um, just to go with that. And, and do, wherever you land, uh, politically, socially, culturally, um, you know, you can find someone that will support your uh, position, your best sort of most safe and secure home base position. And you know, and never actually be a person who brings the heavy stuff of life into prayer. And I want to challenge you, challenging myself with this. I want to challenge you. Are you praying about the stuff that is causing the most dissension uh, and division in your life? Are you, are you praying? Are you waiting? Are you allowing God the time that maybe he wants to take in order to answer those prayers or to work in those situations. All right, so the first category of prayer that James sees that's off are the no prayers. The second one are those who are praying, 
but they're praying with selfish motives. So this is a problem of of prayer life driven by a desire for God to be our servant. Here I want to just say this. I read this um, this week. The purpose of prayer is not to persuade God to do our bidding. It is to align our will to his and ask him to bring his kingdom to bear on our lives as it is in heaven. So question, right? So maybe you are praying, but how much of your prayer life is dominated by asking God to accomplish certain things in your life that you want accomplished? So James is saying it's not just that you're you're you know, you're fighting. It's your prayer life is is an evidence that that your the way you're fighting is not driven by the Holy Spirit, and also that things are off in your spiritual growth, in your formation, in your development into the image of God. There's there's some uh, crucial sort of yellow flags going up as James is watching and listening to them pray. And their prayer lives were revealing to James that something was taking place at a heart level that wasn't good. Unfaithfulness to God due to a commitment to either solving stuff with their own human wisdom and strength or the wisdom of other people and not God, so they're not praying, or unfaithfulness due to a commitment to um, just wanting the desires of your heart gratified, just the stuff that you want. Um, and this is, a, this is a big thing. I mentioned this on Sunday in our live and I, and I would have, I didn't say it as well as I hope to even just now, but our prayer life, and what James is talking about here is a prayer life that's driven by a desire to align ourselves to the heart and the will of God, not to turn God into our, our, our magical genie or bellhop, not to make God um, our supernatural errand boy just to get the stuff that we want not to demand that God be our servant. And um, that spirit driving that, driving that kind of prayer life is not just at work within, um, you know, the followers of Jesus community. It's at work, uh, it's, that, it's the same spirit that's at work in our culture. And especially in the West, in our culture that is demanding that we, that we retain the right to determine everything about our lives, that our, our desire uh, sexually, our desire with uh, identity and the whole kind of scope of, and I want to say this so gently and carefully, I'm not saying this with malice or with anger, but um, the spirit behind what James is talking about, the, the spirit that drives a prayer life that is filled with selfish motives is the same spirit that is driving our culture and says that I, uh, I demand God 
that you that you um, not only agree with me, but that you validate every desire of my heart sexually, every desire of my heart as it relates to my identity. This is the spirit uh, at work behind the scenes in um, segments of even the Christian community that would say, God is love, therefore he would never violate what I believe my heart desires. He would never violate my desire, my, my, this, the, the, the heart cry of my life. He would never violate that. And therefore God exists to serve my desires. And, and that's, I think, one of the, the, you know, one of the spirits that's driving this, the, the whole conversation around identity and sexuality and all of that in our culture, it's that everybody else exists to serve um, the expression of my inner being and what I want. Um, also, that same spirit, James is saying, is at work even in the Christian community and it's at work even in uh, sort of the extreme sides um, of the prosperity gospel movement. And I wanna be, again, super careful here. I have many dear friends, people I love and respect that have grown up in sort of the word of faith or prosperity, or maybe prosperity light. They wouldn't call themselves prosperity gospel people, but those people, um, and I won't name names here, but the like driven by this idea that God's greatest purpose in our lives is to bring us wealth and happiness and affluence, financial wealth, financial blessing, as you know, as we define that. And it's that same spirit at work um, behind the scenes there that makes God the servant and not us. And um, I, this is, James is challenging this. He's saying your prayer life, you're not getting what you're asking for because what you're asking for isn't coming from the Holy Spirit. It's just coming from you. It's what you want. And it's driven by selfish motives. And so we've got to, we've, man, these are <laughs> super hard and convicting and challenging words of James. So I, I, again, I would just ask you, as I ask myself, Jesus, like, um, what are those things? Holy Spirit, would you reveal in me any areas of twisted motivation going on in my heart? James continues on, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world all right, a heart driven by the values of the world. And that what he's talking about there is the zeitgeist or the, the, um, the, the larger sort of um, prevailing winds of culture and um, the demands of, of, you know, we would say the demands of the entertainment industry, Hollywood, um, the the world political systems that are going on in different countries and the, the major sort of talking points, the major driving priorities um, that we see coming through 
you know, big tech and media and all of those things. Don't you realize that friendship with the world, with those things, makes you an enemy of God? I'll say it again, James says, if you want to be a friend of the world, the values and, um, you know, ideas and assumptions and imperatives and, um, you know, demands of the world, if you want to be a friend of those, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think scripture has no meaning that God is, and James says, God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Again, so James is deeply challenging us, his first century audience. And he's saying that, you know, the lack of, of answered prayer, so your unanswered prayer in your lives is revealing a bigger problem going on in your heart. And it's revealing that your heart is dominated by stuff that God is actually opposed to. And it's being dominated, even if you've uh, sanitized it and given it Christian sort of um, language and uh, Christian excuses. Again, sort of if, if I don't want to, not to pick on these too much, but you go back to those who are, heavily, heavily into a prosperity gospel. They they give that a biblical framework, not one that I would agree is correct, but they give it a biblical framework and call it godly and good. And James is saying it's, you know, we need to second guess that. We need to challenge that. You're not getting what you are praying for because what you're praying for is actually rooted not in the character and the nature of God, in the work of the Holy Spirit. It's rooted in the values and structures and systems of the world around you. So there's a more important problem going on in your heart is what James is saying. And for all of the the heated arguments and the religious piety and zealotry that he sees around him, he's saying, look guys, um, it's a great show you're putting on, but your hearts are compromised. And uh, when he talks about, you know, the contrast of friendship with the world versus friendship with God, that word friendship in the first century is very different than our, our the way we use it. The, James is not talking about a Facebook level of friendship. Facebook friends didn't exist. In James's time, he's talking about friendship on a much deeper level. Friendship for James was about commitment to one another, fidelity, and the expectation of mutual instruction for mutual growth. So James is contrasting a commitment and fidelity to the values and zeitgeist of the age in which we live or that they lived versus a fidelity and a commitment at, in a heart level to God and being shaped into the image of Jesus. John talks about this in 1 John 2, 15. Don't love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. For the world only offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But everyone or anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So there's a, there's a competition that's going on that James is saying, and he's saying, guys, you are being driven by worldly values, worldly 
um, uh, priorities. And they're not just sort of neutral. They're not benign. They're actually, they make you an enemy of God. There is no in-between. There's no neutral in, 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 in anything. And we are, we are um, we're deceived if we believe that there's neutral. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of, you know, Satan and, and his, you know, his realm, the flesh, the world, and the devil, or the kingdom of God. Um, so James is saying, look, you know, you can't, you can't play on both sides of this. You can't straddle the fence. It, there's no straddling going on. And, um, and then he goes on to say that God is passionate, that the spirit he placed within us should be faithful to him. Now, there's some debate on wh like what he means when he says the spirit he's placed within us. I think most likely this is referring to the human spirit that he's given us unique among all of his other creation. He's given us a human spirit that the human spirit he's placed within us, our spirit, he's jealous that our spirit um, become a place that is friendly to him, a place that's faithful and committed and passionate to him, that our spirit is obedient to the Holy Spirit, is obedient to God, is faithful to him and not adulterous and not... Um, you know, committing adultery on him, not, uh, you know, faithful to the stuff of the world. So again, James is calling their attention again to the heart and that, you know, they can't have a heart um, that is divided, that God doesn't want to share us on a heart level. What he's saying is they've let, you know, the spirit of envy rule and direct their spirit. You have, uh, you don't have what you want for because you're asking with wrong motives. There's envy underneath there. There's, there's all kinds of desires that are contrary to God. And um, so he's calling their attention to the heart and that that spirit of envy is ruling and directing their spirit instead of God and um, instead of the Holy Spirit directing their spirit. So again, James is not calling us to a life of religious fundamentalism where we just, we boycott everything bad and call it evil. Um, he's calling us to go deeper where we examine the heart, our heart, and we um, ask and invite him to examine us. Psalm 139, search my heart and know me. And, and a key question here is, and this would be a regular one for me, I wanna challenge you with this. Holy Spirit, what are the desires that are at work within my heart? What are those, the spirits driving those things? A spirit of pride, a spirit of you know, um, lust, a spirit of unfaithfulness, a spirit of independence and anger and self-righteousness and all of those, what is at work within me and driving me away from faithfulness to God? So here, James has isolated jealousy and selfish ambition, but there are absolutely for sure more that apply. Is there a spirit of lust driving your desires or anger or hate or fear, pride, self-righteousness? It goes on and on and on. Here, I want to ask you this. 
What are the spirits at work in your heart today? Ask the Holy Spirit. James continues, but God gives grace generously as the scriptures say. So you know what? When you see like, oh man, things are messed up. Like my heart is super divided. There's, there's, there's gross stuff going on in there. Look, don't be discouraged. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be dismayed because God gives grace generously. It's not too much for him. You haven't crossed the Rubicon. You haven't crossed, uh, you know, gone beyond God's capacity to heal and restore and redeem and renew. James says, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what is he inviting you to do? He's inviting you to humble yourself and recognize, God, these are the things going on in, in my heart. I, I'm sorry that I've grieved you with them. I'm sorry I've quenched you with them. What James is calling us to in this moment is to humble ourselves before God because why, why, why? Why? Why humble ourselves? James goes on to say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. Humility, humility is the gateway into the presence of God. So what is James calling us to do here? Look, he's saying, you know, we've all messed up. Things might be bad. They're not looking so good, but here's what you do. Get yourself up, stand up and resist the devil. We have to be active in this. In our life of faith, we can't just pretend like we're walking around with some invisible super shield around us that makes us impervious to the devil. He is, he is trying to steal and kill and destroy you. He is at work. You are not behind some invisible cloak. <laughs> you don't, if you're a Trekkie, you don't have cloaking so that you can hide yourself from the devil. He is attacking you. He is working to take you down. And James is saying, get up, get up off the ground. Wake up and realize you are in the middle of a spiritual battle. Your life, my life is a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual war zone. As you and I walk the earth today, we are walking in a war zone. And James is saying your responsibility is to resist the devil. Step one, resist the devil. You have to be active in that. He's calling us to intimacy, but he's saying the road to intimacy begins with humility and then continues by resisting the devil. So how do you do that? It's, it's simple. <laughs> You know, when you have that thought of lust come, that guys, that thought that is tempting you to go online and look at pornography or to um, take a second look at that beautiful woman that you pass by or to, to indulge your thought life um, in, in sexual fantasy, all of those things. 
James is saying, you need to resist the devil. What do you do? I take that thought captive. This is literally what you say. I take that thought captive in the name of Jesus. I resist you spirit of lust. It is written, flee from sexual immorality. That's, I'm quoting Paul now. Flee from sexual immorality. No other sins a man commits um, are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So what am, what am I doing there? I'm, I'm stopping the thought. I'm stopping the, the you know, um, that urge to move beyond, um, you know, uh, you know this, this idea that's introduced in my mind, oh, go do something sexual or whatever it is. I'm stopping that before it gets to the place where I'm about to enact and agree with it, agree with that temptation. And I'm, I'm resisting it. I resist you spirit of lust. Uh, it is written, go into scripture using your sword of the spirit or, you know, whatever. I resist you spirit of pride. Um, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I resist you spirit of anger. I resist you spirit of impatience. I resist you, whatever. You go through them and you resist Satan. You resist his tactics. You resist his patterns. You resist um, the temptation that is coming from him, that James is saying, you've got to get in the fight. Wake up, you're in a battle. It's time to pick up your armor. It's time to pick up your sword and it's time to resist the enemy. It's time to resist Satan. So again, how do we draw near to God? We begins with humility. Then it begins with getting involved in the fight and in the battle, resisting the desires and urges that, that are coming from your own flesh or from the enemy. And then it involves the act of drawing near to God. So James is calling us back to intimacy. And again, this warring and fighting and bickering and this division and this anger and your inability to be patient and your, your misguided prayer life because you're not praying or even if you are, it's driven by totally selfish motivations, not in alignment with the spirit of God. James is saying, what you need is to draw, you need to cultivate a life of intimacy. You need to cultivate uh, a, a life of devotion, all right? So um, you need to get back to cultivating and valuing and, and, and prioritizing the presence of God in your life. This is where everything emanates from. And James is calling us back to that, not to behavior management. James is not in this whole book, he's not just saying do better, do better, talk better, respond better, you know, like do better, you know, philanthropy. And, and you know, he's, he's calling us to do the kind of work that's necessary to cultivate the presence of God in our life. And so he's giving us here a bit of an orthopraxy, uh, an orthodoxy as well, but orthopraxy, that's necessary for spiritual growth. So it's not only the removal of sin and the resisting of the devil, but it is an intentional nearness to the presence of God. This is why we talk so often and I talk so often about cultivating a life of intentional spiritual practice. Jesus did it in his own life. If Jesus 
had to cultivate rhythms of practice, rhythms of prayer, rhythms of meditating on scripture, rhythms of fasting, rhythms of generosity, whatever. Like these are just some examples. These are the things that Jesus cultivated in his life. And these are the things that bring us into um, nearness. They help, they, they are the, the vehicle that allow us to draw near to God. And James is saying it's not just about resisting sin and the devil, but it's also about prioritizing the presence of God in your life. One time, um, uh, a seminary student came to A.W. Tozer, and um, he was asking for Tozer's perspective on a theological debate that was raging on campus. And um, I th- maybe it was around, you know, wh- I don't even want to say. Um, but this is what Tozer said to him. Don't waste your time debating these things. There's so much that we talk, here, let me finish the quote, sorry. (laughs) Don't waste your time debating these things. Go to your room and meet with God. Man, go to your room and meet with God. How much do we argue about, especially in Christian circles? How how much, like, non-essential, non-salvation impacting, theology and doctrine and and tradition and you know all of that how much do we argue about that is so fruitless that just leads the church the church right now is splintered into 10,000 pieces and it seems to be only getting worse what we need more of it's great to have rigorous debate and we need to lean into things with our whole mind and we need to we need to confront the stuff that's going on around us and in the world but what we need even more than that or preeminently before that is to go to our rooms and meet with God to draw near to God and that's what James is saying so James is calling us to a, a, not only a posture of humility not only actively engage in resisting the enemy but he's calling us to actively invest in seeking intimacy. He's calling us and like um, kind of drawing on here and and later through, you know, Christian um, spiritual history, this has been kind of broken down into four categories, four areas of spiritual formation and growth. Number one, Thoughts. Again, this is James. He's talking about this and resisting the devil. Um, and we've talked about the, the realm of our thought life before, even as it relates to our tongue and the imaginary conversations we have, all of that stuff. So spiritual formation, there's these categories, these movements that we that that for thousands of years, like the early church fathers and and beyond and down from there have recognized, number one, we need to operate in the realm of uh, our thought life and bringing that under the authority of Jesus. Paul talks about this. Don't be uh, conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we need to bring our lives under scripture. This is what Jesus did. Again, scripture 
He brought himself under scripture. Scripture formed and shaped his thought life. So the first sort of thing James is talking about, resisting the devil, all of that stuff, thoughts. Then desires. So our, our renewed thinking need to lead us to reprioritizing our lives around the presence of God, cultivating desire, cultivating intimacy. It's out of that intimacy that action begins to grow and not action in the sense of religious do-goodism, but the action that further cultivates desire and then moves on to build culture. And so thoughts, desires, action, and culture. That's how formation takes place in our lives in a spiritual sense. Um, you know, it's not just religious activity that James is calling for. He's calling for us to cultivate nearness to God, to prioritize his presence. Um, Christian leader named Ron Cantor says this, the key to living a holy life of service to God is not human effort, but being filled with God, being connected to the source. This is where, um, you know, David says in Psalm 23, you know, who may climb the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols. This is what James is talking about when he's like, you know, purify your hands, cleanse your hearts, you sinners, right? He's saying, look, we've got it deal with both the external and internal purity, with deed and disposition. It's not one or the other, it's a both and. So how do we respond? I'm closing this up, man. If you're still with me, wow. I am I'm shocked, for one. <laughs> Proud uh, of you. And um, man, that's amazing. So how do we respond? Again, James delves into this in verses nine and 10. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So how do we respond? In humility and repentance. James is saying that's where we begin. I humble myself before you, Jesus. I'm sorry for grieving you. I'm sorry for the stuff that I've cultivated in my heart that has grieved you or quenched you. I invite you to, to um, just illuminate specifically the desires that are going on in my heart that are driving me away from you, God, that have grieved you. This is what Joel says in Joel 2. This is, uh, the Lord says, turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. I'm not looking for external posturing and religious stuff. Turn your heart to me, tear your heart instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and eager to relent and not punish. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. 
There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. James is saying there, you know, um, sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. The laughter that James is referring to is not, uh, James isn't calling us to be miserable and to walk around with this morbid sense of failure and sadness and gloom. That's not what James is calling us to. The laughter that he's saying, you need to get rid of this laughter. That laughter he's referring to is the scornful laughter of of a fool the scornful laughter of, a, of someone who refuses to take sin seriously, the scornful laughter of the one who mocks God and says, hey, you know what, this, none of this matters. The scornful laughter of uh, someone mocking God, mocking, um, mocking holiness and purity, mocking sin, someone who refuses to live with a fear of God and believes that their desires and cravings are the ultimate God who must be served. That's what James is calling for, for sadness and mourning and gloom over that spirit, that mocking, laughing, defiant spirit that says my desires and cravings are my ultimate God. God, you exist to serve me. James is warning us about that. So James is calling us to humility and brokenness and repentance to God. And he's calling us not just to that in our own lives, but he finishes uh, verses 11 and 12. I'm finishing with this. He finishes with this, this sort of address to not speak evil against each other, um, not criticize or judge each other. So he, he brings this again out of the realm of just me and my private relationship with God to saying, look, like your humility and brokenness, your spiritual desire to walk in holiness and purity has to impact the relationships around you. So again, just to bring this to a close, Um, super practical, cultivate a prayer life, a life before God that's, that's driven by humility. Father, I humble myself before you. That's my, that are, those are literally the first words out of my mouth every morning as I wake up. Um, And then secondly, recognize that there are evil desires at war with with God in your heart. I recognize um, that I, I fall short of your glory, God. I recognize that my heart is driven by these things and I'm sorry for grieving you with those things. This is where I ask the Holy Spirit to help me recognize those things that are at war with the presence of God. And then number three, so humility, recognize. Number three, repent. I'm sorry for grieving you and quenching you. I repent for those things. Number four, resist. I resist them now in the name of Jesus. And number five, um, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, uh, to clothe you with his presence and uh, take time to draw near to God. Take time to cultivate his presence, to sit in quietness, solitude, 
silence, meditate on scripture, um, engage in fasting and those things, cultivate intimacy with him and then bring that into your relational life. I, 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 man, I'm so thankful for you. Oh, I, I hope and pray that you experience, um, man, you, that you experience a deep, deep longing and hunger and desire for the presence of Jesus in your life. I'm just, I'm asking Holy Spirit that you would ignite in anybody who's still listening at this point, you would ignite a deep hunger and longing for your presence in their lives. Amen. <laughs>